Hello, I'm Eric Huang. You're listening to Saint Podcast, a podcast about the always fascinating and often controversial lives of the saints. This is a history and culture podcast that traces the origins of morality tales of the saints or hagiographies through queer and feminist stories, ancient legends and lore, art history, and pop culture. This is part two of a special Saint podcast episode for the holiday season. An exploration of how Saint Nicholas evolved into Santa Claus. In part one, we met Saint Nicholas, a bishop who wasn't a historic figure, but has nevertheless had a tremendous impact. As his legend spread westwards from the Middle East and Asia Minor, the gift-giving saint merged with countless local gift-giving divinities and demons. Two Christianized traditions emerged. A Catholic tradition in which the bishop Saint Nicholas visited households, leaving presents for good children, whilst an enforcer companion did the dirty work of punishing bad children with imprisonment and beatings. The second was a Protestant tradition that's transformed the now illegal Catholic saint into a secular wild man who wore a cloak or animal skins instead of Episcopal vestments. This gift giver looked a lot like Gandalf the Grey. He wasn't a bishop or saint, therefore he didn't need an enforcer companion to deliver corporal punishments to bad children. The two traditions coexisted side by side for centuries, and began mixing and mingling in an unprecedented fashion in the Americas. It's here in the North American British colonies of the 17th century where our story continues. This is part two of Last Christmas, Saints Nicholas, Santa Claus, and Christmas Past. In part one, we explored European midwinter figures and customs. Similar seasonal celebrations flourished in the Americas long before anyone brought Father Christmas, Berchte, Belschnickel, Lucy, Nicholas, and others to the Western Hemisphere. The Cahokia Mounds State Historic Site near Collinsville, Illinois, is what remains of a once massive city that stood on the banks of the Mississippi River from about the 12th to the 14th centuries. The site is named after the Cahokia tribe, an offshoot of the Illiniwek. A large man-made mound dominates the landscape at the historic site. Called Monk's Mound today after the Trappist monks who took up residence there centuries ago, a temple or chieftain's dwelling would have commanded the structure in its heyday. Roughly one kilometer to the west stands the Cahokia Woodhenge. Like Stonehenge in the UK, Woodhenge was likely a public religious space with wooden structures rather than stones arranged in a circle to mark the celestial movements of the sun. On the day of the winter solstice, the rising sun aligns perfectly with one of the wooden henges and the top of Monk's Mound. Researchers have speculated that rituals were held here to honor the sun and ensure its return after the darkest day of the year. 
Numerous Native American cultures celebrated the return of a sun god in remarkably similar ways as pre-Christian Europeans did on the other side of the world. The Hopi of northern Arizona observed Soyal, a day in preparation for the arrival of the Katsinam, guardian spirits who wake the sun from their winter hibernation and escort them back into the sky. The Aztecs from Central America celebrated the rebirth on the winter solstice of the sun god Huitzilpochtli, and the Inuit in the far northern reaches of the continent, where the sun doesn't rise in winter, held great feasts and exchanged gifts to please Sedna, the mother of the sea, a divinity who ruled over the very livelihood of the culture. A New Year's celebration involved blowing out the lights in every house, then relighting them with a fresh flame, symbolizing the sun's return. Cultures the world over viewed winter as a dangerous period that preceded a time of rebirth and renewal. Celebrations were necessary to ensure the return of the sun and spring. The Protestant pilgrims who founded the colony at Plymouth, Massachusetts disagreed. Nothing but prayer would bring back spring and the sun. Midwinter celebrations were pagan parties. Christmas observances were just as bad, Catholic perversions, sinful and indulgent. Due to the strict pilgrims and the Puritans that followed them, Christmas celebrations were illegal in many parts of New England until the 18th century. That said, not everyone followed the rules. Governor William Bradford of Plymouth Colony was recorded in a document from 1621 reprimanding a group of men for taking a break from work to play ball on Christmas Day. Thank you so very much for listening to St. Podcast. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as the cost of a cup of coffee every month, your patronage will help keep St. Podcast going, as well as unlock access to bonus episodes, a behind-the-scenes peek at what we do, and free St. Podcast merchandise as part of your support. Head to www.patreon.com forward slash St. Podcast. As always, Saint is spelled out, S-A-I-N-T. Thanks again for listening. Outside of New England, Christmas and other midwinter traditions brought over by settlers from every corner of Europe flourished and co-mingled. Here's a passage from Tom German's great book, Santa Claus Worldwide, a history of St. Nicholas and other holiday gift givers that lists the diversity of practices. Dutch and English traditions in New York, Scandinavian traditions flourishing in New Jersey, Delaware, Minnesota, Germany's Pelsnickel and Christkindl, Moravian immigrants with their unique Christmas traditions in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, and English Lord Baltimore welcoming English, Irish, and German Catholics into Maryland. Whilst Christmas celebrations were prohibited by the Pilgrims and Puritans of New England, the Mid-Atlantic and Southern colonies continued to celebrate the midwinter season and Christmas itself with feasts, festivals, and gift-giving traditions imported from all over Europe and beyond. As a diversity of names entered the English-speaking lexicon, they changed. Belschnickel became Belsnickel or Pelsnickel. 
Christ Kindle became Kris Kringle, which was the most popular name for the midwinter gift giver for hundreds of years until the 19th century. And it wasn't until the 19th century, after the first uniquely American celebration was created and adopted, a celebration centered around the New England pilgrims themselves, that Christmas was embraced by the entire country as a national holiday. Thanksgiving is a national holiday in the United States that falls on the fourth Thursday of November. Like many harvest festivals, it heralds the beginning of a midwinter season of holidays and merrymaking. Days of Thanksgiving were common in 17th century Europe, holdovers from pre-Christian observances whose origins are thousands of years old. The varied traditions accompanied European colonists to the Americas. The harvest event most commonly tied to the origin story of American Thanksgiving occurred in Plymouth Colony on October of 1621. It was held after the first successful and extremely hard-won harvest by the pilgrims. About half of the settlers had died since leaving Europe almost a year ago. All might have perished had friendly locals not shared their knowledge of indigenous flora and fauna and farming techniques. The Thanksgiving celebration was a religious one to honor the Christian God for the blessing of a successful harvest at long last. The observance was held over three days with feasts, acts of ritual thanks, and prayer. It attracted the attention of the Wampanoag, a Native American confederation of nearly 30 tribes. Ninety Native Americans joined the harvest festival, nearly doubling the ranks of the 53 pilgrims in attendance. As a side note, the revelers at this first Thanksgiving weren't Puritans, they were pilgrims. They're not the same thing. Both were strict Calvinist Protestants. The Puritans founded the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They were members of the Anglican Church and wished to reform the official Church of England from within as active members. The pilgrims, on the other hand, were separatists. They wanted nothing to do with the Anglicans and left Europe to found their own community. Plymouth Colony, where they could worship in the way they saw fit. It was the pilgrims, not the Puritans, who celebrated the Thanksgiving popularized by the national holiday. Both, however, held Thanksgiving observances. Nearly every Christian community did. Numerous Thanksgiving events were celebrated throughout the young United States to give thanks through prayers, services, and food for a wide range of blessings from a bountiful harvest or hunt to the success of the American Revolution. By the mid-1800s, most states in New England and the Mid-Atlantic held official harvest festivals of Thanksgiving. In 1846, Sarah Josepha Hale, a writer and editor of the popular magazine Gaudy's Ladies' Book, began a 17-year campaign to lobby for the establishment of a national Thanksgiving holiday. At the time, only two national holidays were observed, 
the birthday of the first president, George Washington, and Independence Day on the 4th of July. A New Englander by birth, Hale would have celebrated the local Thanksgiving celebrations in her neighborhood and thought it was an event that should be shared by everyone in the young nation. She connected the proposed holiday to the 1621 Pilgrim celebration, framing it as a uniquely American observance that could unite a nation of different peoples under one foundation legend. Sarah Hale would pen countless articles about the proposed Thanksgiving holiday and send letters to numerous governors and congresspeople, as well as five presidents, tirelessly lobbying for the national holiday. It was President Abraham Lincoln who finally proclaimed a national Thanksgiving Day on the 26th, the final Thursday of November, 1863. It was all about timing. After 17 years lobbying for the holiday, Hale's story struck a nerve with Lincoln's administration. However problematic it might seem now, her Thanksgiving story about two cultures coming together at the very foundation of the colonies that would become the United States was desperately needed to unite a deeply divided nation two years into the Civil War. Because of her tireless work, Hale was commonly referred to as Mother Thanksgiving. She's also the person credited for making turkey the Thanksgiving meal. The bird was most likely not served at the first Thanksgiving in 1621. Venison was the main meat brought by the Wampanoag guests, as was, quote, fowl. Scholars are in near agreement that the fowl referenced in surviving documents refers to duck or geese, not turkey. Hale made the turkey popular because of a Thanksgiving dinner scene included in her 1827 novel, Northwood, about a fictional New England town. Quote, the roasted turkey took precedence on this occasion, being placed at the head of the table, and well did it become its lordly station, sending forth the rich odor of its savory stuffing, and finally covered with the frost of the basting. Sarah Hale is also the writer of arguably the most popular nursery rhyme in the English-speaking world. Mary had a little lamb. Like turkey, cranberry sauce also wasn't present at the first Thanksgiving. The Mi'kmaq of Canada's Atlantic provinces introduced the berry to French settlers in Port Royal, Nova Scotia. The settlers called the fruits little red apples. The first recipe for cranberry sauce appeared in the popular cookbook American Cookery by Amelia Simmons in 1796. There's no mention of cranberries from the 1621 Pilgrim Thanksgiving. Given how austere their diet usually was, it's unlikely they had enough sugar to make the sauce. And even if they had, their religious views probably wouldn't have allowed them to indulge. Excessively sugary, spicy, and rich foods were sinful. As a harvest festival, Thanksgiving has always been a day and a long weekend of eating and drinking. Accompanying the feasting are sporting events, not chariot races like in ancient Rome, but gladiatorial battles called football. The four days of the Thanksgiving weekend are a uniquely American Saturnalia that combined European midwinter observances with indigenous and First Nations foods like turkey, potatoes, squash, pumpkin, pecans, corn, and cranberries. According to Tom German, 
Once Thanksgiving became a national holiday, it kicked off the midwinter season in America, with the 12 days of Christmas in the middle, New Year and Epiphany at the other end. Even the anti-Christmas New Englanders warmed to the entire holiday season, as its Anglican and Catholic qualities were diluted by indisputably American observances. In 1870, five years after the end of the American Civil War, Christmas was recognized by Congress as a national holiday. On December 25, 1870, the first national Christmas holiday was celebrated in the United States of America. And whilst most gift-giving customs coalesced around Christmas with a non-religious bearded man at its center, the gift-givers themselves, as well as how and when they left gifts, still varied. Belschnickel from the Palatinate region of Germany was very popular in the Mid-Atlantic, particularly around Pennsylvania. He was one of the creepy gift-givers dressed in dirty rags and animal skins, a descendant from the wild hunt figures we met in Part 1. Belschnickel is often portrayed with a very long tongue. He wields a stick used to beat bad children. His visits occurred any time in the two weeks running up to Christmas. Upon arriving at a house, he tap on a window with his stick. Once inside, Belschnickel would quiz the children on the Bible, and make the children sing and dance for him. Those who knew their catechism and pleased him received candy. Those who didn't, and any whom he knew had been naughty, were punished. In the Americas, Belschnickel was known as Belsnickel or Belsnickel. In Maryland and surrounding states, he was also called the Christmas Woman. According to a publication called Brown's Miscellaneous Writings from the 1830s, quote, Children not only saw the mysterious person, but felt him, or rather his stripes upon their backs with his switch. The annual visitor would make his appearance some hours after dark, thoroughly disguised, especially the face, which would sometimes be covered with a hideously ugly fizz. He generally wore a female garb, hence the name Christmas Woman. Sometimes it would be a veritable woman, but with masculine force and action. He or she would be equipped with an ample sack about the shoulders, filled with cakes, nuts, and fruits, and a long hazel switch, which was supposed to have some kind of charm in it, as well as a sting. One hand would scatter the goodies upon the floor, and then the scramble would begin by the delighted children and the other hand would ply the switch upon the backs of the excited youngsters, who would not show a wince, but had it not been parental discipline, there would have been screams to reach a long distance. The word fizz from the previous passage means face or facial expression. 
The male Bell's Nickel gift giver from Maryland often dressed as a woman, and sometimes was a woman. Perhaps this is another example of midwinter identities mixing and mingling in the Americas, Belsnickel becoming Bafana or the Germanic witch Lucy, and vice versa. It seems also that Belsnickel's punishments were really arbitrary. He beats all of the children once they bend down to grab the goodies he's thrown onto the floor, whether or not they've been naughty or nice. Definitely not the behavior of a saint. Bell's Nickel Night, on the eve of St. Nicholas's feast day in Indiana, was celebrated by mask-wearing young men who ran through town bells-nicking or causing mischief. Communities elsewhere around the world, settled by people from the Palatinate region of Germany, particularly Nova Scotia in Canada and northeastern Brazil, all had their own midwinter bellsnickel or belschnickel customs. Due to sizable Catholic immigrant communities in the Americas, St. Nicholas himself was present in many holiday observances. His name Nicholas often shortened to Nick, as in St. Nick. Another nickname for Nicholas is Klaus. Protestant German speakers shortened Sankt Nikolaus to Sankt Klaus. For the Dutch, Saint Nicholas became Sinterklaas, a figure who still wears Episcopal attire but is very much a secular gift giver. Traditionally, Sinterklaas rode a white horse named Amerigo. Sadly, Amerigo died in 2019 and was replaced by a new horse named Ozosnel, which means oh so fast. In Belgium, Sinterklaas's horse has two names, Slechtvierfatang and Muifierfatang, bad weather today or good weather today depending on the day. Sinterklaas still visits children on St. Nicholas Eve in the Low Countries on the 5th of December. He's said to live in Spain and travels to the Netherlands on a steamship from Alicante during the holiday season, or by land on horse or train from Madrid. A servant named Black Pete accompanies the bishop. He's one of the problematic blackface enforcers we discussed in Part 1. St. Nicholas Day celebrations featuring the titular saint and Black Piet, or Swarta Piet, as he's known in the Netherlands, are still held in Europe and the former New Holland region of Brazil. The blackface dress-up to mimic a black servant or Moorish jester has sparked controversy. Swarta Piet has been renamed Rutwerk Piet, or Sooty Piet, blackened by soot rather than a reference to his race and is just as often portrayed today by a woman as a man. TikTok and Instagram are full of shorts featuring young women dressed as Sooty Pete. Standing next to Sinterklaas's horse, Osso Snell, they look like jockeys. The story of how St. Nicholas influenced the development of Santa Claus isn't a straightforward one at all, especially when we get to the 19th century United States. Every midwinter figure mingled with the other. Legends intertwined exactly as they did centuries earlier when pre-Christian midwinter figures met Christian divinities. Nearly every combination of traditions existed side by side, their names and biographies interchangeable, malleable. Sometimes there was a religious connotation, sometimes not, regardless of what the gift giver wore. It was within this melting pot of diverse traditions in the late 18th and early 19th centuries 
that the name Santa Claus gained popularity. The dominant English-speaking population had been pronouncing Sinterklaas and the related German Sankt Klaus as Santa Claus for at least a century or more. Neither Santa Claus nor Saint Nick, or even Belsnickel, was the most popular name ascribed to the gift giver. In the 19th century, that honor was held by a name derived from the Christ child stand-in, Christkindle. It's a name familiar to most, even today, Chris Kringle. Images and stories of the midwinter gift giver were most often called Kris Kringle in magazines, books, and shops in the 19th century. And it was interchangeable with Santa Claus, Belsnickel, and the others. But Santa Claus would rise above the rest, slowly but surely to become a household name from Jamaica to Japan. All because of a poem that doesn't mention Santa Claus at all, and whose writer never intended to have it published. In 1822, New Englander Clement Clark Moore wrote an untitled Christmas poem to entertain his children. It be published a year later without his permission by the Sentinel, a semi-weekly newspaper from Troy, New York. The editor titled the poem, Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas, and wrote the following introduction. We know not to whom we are indebted for the following description of that unwearied patron of children that homely but delightful personification of parental kindness, Santa Claus. Santa was spelled S-A-N-T-E. The poem would be reprinted in a handful of periodicals over the next few decades, often with a similar introduction about Santa Claus, even though the words Santa Claus don't appear in the poem. The figure mentioned in the text is Saint Nicholas. From the late 19th century onwards, most people referred to the poem by its opening line, The Night Before Christmas. The Night Before Christmas is an eyewitness account by a parent who is awakened by St. Nicholas's arrival at their home on Christmas Eve. The saint is dressed in a fur suit, quote, tarnished with ashes and soot from coming down the chimney. The poem describes Nicholas as a small, pixie-like figure who rides a miniature sleigh drawn by eight tiny reindeer. He's red-cheeked with a snow-white beard. Saint Nicholas is chubby and jolly. His belly shakes like a bowl of jelly when he laughs. The narrator says he looks like a peddler, a traveling salesman with a sack of toys on his back. Once he finishes filling stockings, the saint taps the side of his nose with a finger and magically disappears back up the chimney. The Night Before Christmas was heavily influenced by an illustrated poem called Old Sancta Claus with Much Delight by an unknown writer illustrated by Arthur Stansbury. I'm going to refer to this poem as Stansbury's poem. It was published in a small paperback entitled The Children's Friend, a New Year's present to the little ones from 5 to 12. Old Sancta Claus was released just as Moore was writing his poem. The writer of Old Sancta Claus, unlike Moore, 
named the gift giver Santa Claus. Stansbury's poem includes the first known illustration of Santa Claus, and the first known reference to reindeer, a single steed that pulled Santa's sleigh. Here's a paragraph from scholar Tom German's book that explains how Stansbury and Moore's poems standardized in America some of the conflicting midwinter gift-giving traditions. Parts of the poem had long-standing precedents in Europe. These include a bearded, fur-wearing, soot-covered gift-giver who enters the home through the chimney and leaves gifts for well-behaved children in shoes or stockings. Other parts of the poem were uniquely American. These include a gift-giver who is a cross between the stately St. Nicholas with his mitre and robes and the grungy, homeless-looking faux Nicholases of Central Europe, and St. Nick's arrival in a sleigh pulled by flying reindeer. The night before Christmas also established what became the consistent gift-giving practices in America, setting the standard on such questions as whether the gift-giver came on St. Nicholas's Day, Christmas, New Year's, or Three Kings Day, Christmas Eve 1, whether he came in person or after everyone was asleep, sleeping 1, whether to put out shoes or stockings, stockings 1, and whether to hang the stockings on the child's bed or the fireplace, the fireplace one. Due to the night before Christmas, a distinctly American midwinter tradition was coalescing around the gift giver called Santa Claus and an arrival with gifts on Christmas Eve. The poem owes a large debt to Stansbury and his earlier Santa story, and also to Moore's friend, Washington Irving, the revered American writer of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. Irving's satirical 1809 piece nicknamed The Knickerbocker's History of New York is often incorrectly credited for inventing Santa Claus. As we've discussed, Santa Claus and his progenitors predate Irving and Moore by centuries. Plus, Irving never mentioned Santa Claus by name until a later edition of the satire, published after both Stansbury and Moore's poems. The Knickerbocker's History of New York no doubt helped popularize Santa and influenced Moore's poem. But it was the intro to The Night Before Christmas, calling St. Nicholas Santa Claus, that made Santa Claus a household name over Kris Kringle. It was Moore who increased Santa's reindeer from one to eight, and gave them names, Dasher and Dancer and so on. The original names for the last two reindeers were Dunder and Blixem, with an M. New York Dutch slang meaning thunder and lightning. In later editions, Moore changed Dunder to Donder, European Dutch for thunder, whilst Blixem became Blitzen to rhyme better with Vixen. The German word for thunder, Donner, replaced Donder in the early 20th century. As an aside, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was invented over 100 years later in 1939 by Robert May. He created the character for his employer, the department store chain Montgomery Ward. Although The Night Before Christmas would become world famous, the poem didn't have an immediate effect on midwinter gift-giving customs. It wasn't until nearly 30 years after its first publication that a national audience in the United States would become aware of it. On the 16th of December, 1857, 
the popular Harper's New Monthly magazine republished the poem in a widely read Christmas edition. A number of picture books by various publishers followed, with new titles and editions coming out nearly every subsequent year. By the 1860s, The Night Before Christmas was famous, and the gift-giver called Santa Claus started surpassing Kris Kringle and the others. Even though the poem still doesn't mention this name at all, and calls the jolly elf Saint Nicholas. The popularity of The Night Before Christmas saw a number of miniature Santa Clauses appearing in books and magazines that accurately portrayed the pixie-like saint with his tiny reindeer described in Moore's poem. In the earliest illustrations, Saint Nicholas's sleigh is barely half the height of a postbox. The sheer number of human-sized Saint Nicholas's Kris Kringles and others meant Santa didn't remain tiny for long. A full-sized Santa became the standard through numerous late 19th century Harper's Magazine illustrations created by Thomas Nast. Thomas Nast was a German-born American cartoonist, influenced by the midwinter figures from the country of his birth. When he first illustrated Santa Claus, he distanced the gift-giver from the dirty Belsnickel and the religious Saint Nicholas. The Santa created by Nast resembled the gift-giver in the night before Christmas. He was portly and jolly, a bearded man in a red, fur-lined, belted jumpsuit, with a midwinter holly wreath perched on his head like a halo. This Santa was full-sized. He had elfin features and carried a lot of toys under his left arm and in a backpack. In his right hand was a long, thin, white pipe. Nast's Santa Claus clearly isn't a Christian figure. With his elfin features and holly wreath on the head, he looks like a pre-Christian nature god. Nast created 33 drawings of Santa Claus between 1863 and 1886. One of these featured a village which was labeled Santa Clausville NP. NP stands for North Pole. It was Nast's pre-Christian gift-giver from the North Pole, rather than Kris Kringle, St. Nicholas, or Belsnickel, who graced the cover of Harper's Weekly when Congress passed a resolution to make Christmas a national holiday in 1870. In the early 20th century, illustrations by Norman Rockwell and J.C. Leyendecker in the Saturday Evening Post continued to mold a non-religious Santa Claus in Nast's model. They smoothed out the elfin features that Nast gave Santa Claus, and made him very human, illustrating him in ordinary human settings like at his desk with paperwork, asleep on a couch, making toys in a workshop, and playing with children. They gave him his signature red and white hat, and made him even jollier, noticeably red-nosed and red-cheeked from the cold, and probably a drink or two. In retrospect, not eggnog, but Coca-Cola. Haddon Sunblom's illustration for a 1931 Coca-Cola ad aimed at children finally cemented the Santa Claus described by Stansbury and Moore, templated by Nash, refined by Rockwell and Leyendecker, into a global icon. This first Santa Claus Coca-Cola ad by Sunblom shows a big-bellied older man. His bright white beard and slightly receding hair match the white fur cuffs of his red, belted, button-up jumpsuit. His cheeks and nose are bright red like his outfit. Santa's signature hat is in his left hand, resting on his waist. 
His right hand is raised, holding aloft an iconic glass of Coca-Cola. Santa looks out at the viewer, toasting us. The tagline reads, My hat's off to the paws that refreshes. Sundblom would draw Santa Claus numerous times for the soft drink company. His final Santa illustration was created in 1964. It shows the jolly gift giver sitting in front of a Christmas tree with a Coke bottle in his left hand. A blonde girl in pink pajamas sits on his lap, whilst a blonde boy in yellow, the same yellow as his hair, looks up at a black puppy with a red bow who's just emerged from an unwrapped carrier box to stand on their hind legs. Santa holds out the Coke as if he's toasting the puppy. The figure in this ad is the unreligious gift giver fully evolved into the Santa Claus we know today, the quintessential kind and jolly grandfather in Coca-Cola colors. Head to the Saint Podcast website to see images of the historic Santa Claus illustrations. The Santa Claus promoted by Coca-Cola is by far the most well-known gift giver today, but his roots to midwinter gift givers haven't gone away. Santa is known as Gwiazdor or Starman in Poland, a figure who can look just like American Santa and also a pre-Christian faux Nicholas Wildman who travels with a supernatural entourage. In Russia, Santa is dead Morots, a winter god recast as an evil wizard by Christian missionaries, who's accompanied by his granddaughter, the Snow Maiden. In Turkey, Santa Claus is Noel Baba, who brings gifts on New Year's Day in the predominantly Muslim country. The most common name for Santa in the UK is Father Christmas, the secular personification of Christmas cheer and the midwinter feasting and merriment associated with the holiday season. The name Father Christmas is first recorded in the 17th century. The Puritan-controlled English government had outlawed Christmas in England, just as they had in the colonies and embraced the ancient midwinter figure as the antidote to the popish St. Nicholas. Father Christmas's popularity waned in the 19th century, kept alive in the public consciousness mainly through Christmas performances called Mummer's Plays, staged by bands of roving actors like carolers. As Santa Claus became popular across the pond in the US, Father Christmas lost his association with drinking and adult entertainment to assume a Santa-like, family-friendly, gift-giving role. Elsewhere across the planet, Santa continues to evolve and take on new guises. In Australia, he swapped his reindeer for flying boomers, male kangaroos. In China, Sun Ren, or the Christmas Elder, has sisters as helpers, not elves. And in Hawaii, Santa is a local, arriving on the island atop a surfboard. Whilst Kris Kringle and Belsnickel have faded away as Santa Claus has risen, St. Nicholas is still a popular midwinter figure. Many Europeans still exchange gifts on the eve of St. Nicholas's feast day. In fact, many cultures celebrate up to three or four gift-giving days during midwinter, beginning with St. Lucy or St. Nicholas's feast days through New Year's and Three Kings Day or Epiphany, a packed holiday season rather than a Christmas season, in which the Bishop St. Nicholas we met in Part 1 is still very relevant. The saint in Episcopal robes and mitre has a key role at modern-day Krampus festivals 
and his nickname, Saint Nick, is interchangeable with Santa Claus. In many ways, Saint Nicholas is Santa Claus. For example, there's a Christmas tradition that Santa Claus, and sometimes his helpers, leaves oranges in stockings, usually three. A tradition tied to the charity of Saint Nicholas we discussed in part one of this episode, in which the saint secretly gifted three bags of gold to three impoverished sisters. The bags are often depicted in art as three golden balls, oranges. The ancients are also alive and well, thriving during midwinter. Modern revivals of countless parties and processions involving people dressing up as supernatural gift givers, demons, goddesses, and enforcers proliferate, whilst several harvest and solstice traditions from Scandinavia to Latin America, India, Japan, have become tourist traps and bucket list experiences. The midwinter season is a bounty of gift-giving nights and feast-filled days, bookended by harvest festivals at the end of autumn and the new year in January or February, depending on whether your year begins on a solar or lunar cycle. From his origins as a holy man, then a legendary bishop who merged with even older gift-giving deities, Santa Claus Saint Nick embodies every midwinter figure, several saints, countless pre-Christian gods, demon enforcers, the madman era of advertising, and every shopping center Santa ringing a bell or sat before a queue of crying children. Today, he might only have a single night, but once upon a time, the entirety of winter was his domain. A dark and dangerous period brightened by decorations, feasts, holidays, and office parties to drive away the danger and doldrum of darkness, ensuring the return of light, warmth, and spring in the new year. To close, here's Old Santa Claus with much delight, the 1821 poem illustrated by Stansbury that inspired Moore's The Night Before Christmas. It's recited by my nephew, Indy Dye. Thanks, Indy, for being on the podcast. Old Santa Claus with much delight, his reindeer drives this frosty night over chimney tops and tracks of snow to bring his yearly gifts to you. The steady friend of virtuous youth, the friend of duty and of truth, each Christmas Eve he joys to come where peace and love have made their home. Through many houses he has been and various beds and stockings seen, some white as snow and neatly mended, others that seemed for pigs intended. To some I gave a pretty doll, to some a peg top or a ball, no crackers, cannons, squibs or rockets, to blow their eyes up or their pockets. Where'er I found good girls or boys, they hated quarrels, strife and noise, I left an apple or a tart, or wooden gun or painted cart. No drums to stun their mother's ear, nor swords to make their sisters fear, but pretty books to store their mind with knowledge of each various kind. But where I found the children naughty, in manners prude and temper haughty, thankless to parents, liars, swearers, boxers or cheats, or base tale bearers, I left a long black birchen rod, such as the dread command of God, directs a parent's hand to use when virtue's path 
his sons refuse. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode, Last Christmas, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, and Christmas Past. Thanks again to my nephew Indy Dye for his rendition of Old Santa Claus with much delight. Indy is an aspiring actor and has appeared in numerous productions in his hometown of Houston, Texas. And thanks again to Indy's parents, Domino and Judy Dye, for doing the readings in this episode. They also appeared in part one. For images of the artworks, people, and topics mentioned in the episode, please have a look at the Saints Podcast website at www.saintspodcast.com. The word saint is spelled out, S-A-I-N-T. The Christmas sleigh bell sound effects were downloaded from Pixabay. The medieval music was composed by Kay McLeod, also downloaded from Pixabay. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for future episodes. Happy holidays and a very Merry Christmas.